Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. All right, expectations are very powerful things. Uh, in life, and in, in relationships, and jobs, uh, the expectations that we have of others uh, impacts and influences those relationships in very strong ways. Uh, the expectations you have of your spouse or of your kids or the expectations your boss has of you. Uh, very powerful, very important. So this morning, what we're looking at as we look at this passage is we're going to look at what expectations can we have of Jesus. Now, a lot of times when we talk about Jesus and who Jesus is, we talk about kind of the, the theological things, that he was God in the flesh, that he was perfect, that he was sinless, that he died on the cross for us. And all that is, is very good and true. We should understand that and know that and study that intently. But something else that we also need to study and look at and, and think about are what expectations practically can we or should we have of Jesus in our daily life? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're looking at uh, what can we accurately and biblically expect of Jesus in our daily lives. Because here's the reality. There are a lot of religions. There are a lot of denominations. There are a lot of religious groups, uh, especially in America, that have kind of developed some false expectations of Jesus. And when we have false expectations of Jesus... When those expectations are not met, that can greatly impact in a negative way our faith and our trust in Him. So as we come along the passage that we're coming to today, just a couple of verses. Let's kind of set up our context. We haven't been in Mark in a while. Uh, we went through Christmas. I think we did once in Mark uh, since, since uh, Christmas, but then we missed last week. And so, <coughs> excuse me, let's kind of set our context, kind of revisit where we're at. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark, Jesus is doing multiple miracles. He's casting out demons. He's doing all these big uh, signs that show who he is. Uh, he's going out. He's teaching in a way that impresses people, that, that people have not kind of seen or experienced before with such power and authority. At the same time, he's walking on water, and he's healing people, and he's casting out demons, and he's raising the dead so that he can uh, uh, vow validate everything that he's saying. He's making some great big spiritual statements and he's validating those with the miracles. Remember, the miracles are not an end of themselves. The miracles show or give validation to the things that Jesus says about who he is, about why he has come. And then in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, we kind of have a transition in the book of Mark. In Mark 8, 29, that's when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and says, you are the Christ. So this is kind of the turning point for the book of Mark, where, where the disciples say, okay, we've been following this guy. He's more than just a teacher. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one that God has sent, who is going to reestablish his kingdom here on the earth. And so now, as we move forward in the book of Mark, Jesus is working within the disciples' lives, or one of the things he's doing is working within the disciples' lives to show them who he is as the Messiah, to kind of set their expectations so that they, they understand who Jesus is and, and what they should be expecting of him and what they should be looking for him to do. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses uh, 30 and 32 of Mark chapter 9. Uh, we'll pray, and then we're going to keep going through, uh, through the passage and, and a bunch of other passages this morning. Starting in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9, it says this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, Son of man is going to the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and just thank you for this time that you've given us. Father God, we thank you that Jesus did come as the Messiah. Father God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at uh, Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God, that you would open up our hearts and our minds uh, to be captivated and impressed by who he is, and that you would use this to draw us closer to himself. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. The first thing that I want us to see is that the disciples had self-centered expectations. Now understand culturally where they were at. All the Jews looked at the Messiah this way. Israel was under oppression of the Romans. The Romans uh, were the, the, the ruling country over Israel. They had been conquered. And so the, 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 the Israelites, they looked at the Messiah as he was going to come with a sword. He was going to come and be a political ruler. He was going to come and to reestablish Israel as the national power and reign from a throne in Jerusalem. He was going to come and reestablish Israel as its own country, reigning and being the biggest, or not the biggest, but the most powerful country in the world. And he was going to rule the world from Israel. That's what they looked for. That's what their goal was. When they looked at the Messiah, that's what they expected. And so the disciples, when they said, you are the Christ, that's what they thought. They thought Jesus was going to come. Once he was done teaching, he was doing all these miracles. He was going to come, and he was going to bust out his sword. They were going to be part of his army. They were going to be his generals, and they were going to uh, kick the Romans out. They were going to set up camp, set up the throne, and they were going to rule with Jesus. They kind of had their expectations of Jesus set. They kind of had this mold of Jesus in their mind. This is what the Messiah is going to do. And then Jesus says to them, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, they understand that, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. This flies in the face of everything they believed and expected about the Messiah. He's supposed to reign. He's supposed to conquer. He's the one that's supposed to kill the enemies. They are not supposed to kill him. What is happening here? Why is Jesus saying this? Why is Jesus saying that if he's the Messiah, that he is about to die or that he is going to die? Their expectations are not lining up with the things that Jesus had said. Their expectations and Jesus' plans are not matched up. And it says that they are too afraid, and they don't understand, and they are too afraid to ask him any more questions. So our goal this morning is to look through Scripture and set a biblical expectation of what we can have when it comes 
to Jesus. Here you've got their expectations coming head to head, and they don't match up. They don't line up. You've got Jesus's who are the right expectations. They're from God. They're what we would call the biblical expectations. This is what God wants. And then you've got their kind of self-centered expectations. We want Israel to be a national powerhouse again. We want to reign with you. We want to rule with you. This is our expectations. They're not as much considered about what God wants. This is what they want. They're self-centered. They're man-centered expectations. And in the reality, we, there are a lot of people in our world that have expectations of Jesus that are not centered on God's Word. They're not centered uh, or come from Scripture, but they're very self-centered, they're very man-centered expectations. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of self-centered expectations of Jesus, and then we're going to go through and look at some biblical expectations of Jesus, of what we can expect of Jesus and how he works in our lives if we place our faith and trust in him. All right, so first we're going to look at three self-centered expectations of Jesus. Now understand, these are the bad expectations. These aren't the good expectations. First expectation that is prominent, especially in our country, but also in our world, is that Jesus came to make me healthy and wealthy. This is what is called the prosperity gospel. It's also called the word of faith, uh, name it and claim it. It's a, it's a belief that has uh, pervaded the church, especially in America, that has been taken out to other countries, that says, if I have enough faith, then God will make me healthy and wealthy. And in fact, if I don't have enough money, and if I fall into some kind of sickness, and I'm not healed, what that means is I lack faith. Now understand, this is not biblical. Understand there is nothing from the Bible that validates this. This comes from, um, well, it doesn't come anywhere from the Word of God. In fact, what this does is it takes the Holy Spirit and makes the Holy Spirit this power that we have to give us what we want. The focus of this ideology or this theology or this doctrine is all about me. The focus is not God. The focus is not His glory. The focus is not His greatness. The focus is God is here to give me stuff. God is here to give me a big house. God is here to give me a big bank account. God is here to make sure that I don't get sick. And if if, if I don't have that stuff, it's because I don't have enough faith in God. Because surely God would never make me suffer. God would never allow me to go through anything bad. God just wants me to be happy and healthy and wealthy. Now understand, we can see throughout Scripture that that does not line up. We can see throughout Scripture, Jesus was a homeless man. Jesus was killed. All the disciples, with the exception of uh, John, were were martyred for their faith. This is an ungodly, uh, unbiblical way of looking at Christianity. Some well-known prosperity gospel preachers are Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer... All of these people proclaim this false gospel that says, if I love God enough, if I'm faithful enough, then God's going to give me a bunch of stuff. And that is a false way of looking at Jesus. (coughs) I'm going to try not to cough a lot, but if I do, excuse me. Second, Jesus came to make everything easier. This kind of way of looking at Jesus says, if I follow Jesus... If I love Jesus, if I make Jesus my Savior, and I'm going to walk with Him and follow Him and love Him, then my life is just going to be puppy dogs and rainbows from here on out. 
Only good stuff happens from here on out. If I love God, then my life is going to be easy. I'm not going to have hard times. I'm not going to have struggles. Not necessarily healthy and wealthy, but my life is just going to be easier because I've got Jesus on my side. Now understand, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. But that also goes against the Bible. In fact, the Bible tells us that as Christians, we are more likely or we're going to run into difficult times. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter says, look, when the fiery trials come, it's not something strange. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James 1-2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I don't have the rest of that verse up there. Uh, but it says that the, 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 the trials that we suffer through, they develop perseverance in our life and in our faith. As Christians, there is an expectation that, that life is going to happen, and sometimes bad things happen. Jesus, when he is talking to the disciples in the book of Matthew, uh, he says, he's talking about grace, how, how common grace is shown that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. At the same time, we understand through that, that as Christians, just because we love God, it does not mean that we are exempt from bad things happening in life. We're not exempt from accidents. We're not exempt from, from sicknesses. We're not exempt from uh, getting laid off. We're not exempt from difficult times in life. We're not exempt, but we are promised that we do not go through these difficult times by ourselves. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that's just life. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And that passage Paul says, Look, we go through tough times and we look to God. We look to Jesus. We look to the things that we cannot see because they are eternal. That is where power comes from. That's where our strength comes from. Look, this momentary light affliction, we're going to go through tough times. But there is a goal of this that is producing a weight of glory. Isaiah 40, 28 through, 28 through 31, a lot of you know these verses, says this. Have you not known, have you not heard... The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and, and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." We are not exempt from the tough times of life. But we are promised that if we are Christians, then we have the creator of the universe on our side. We have the creator of the universe who is our father, who wraps us up in his arms, who strengthens us. Then we have no more strength, no more energy. He is there to strengthen us. He is there to empower us. He is there to 
lift us up on wings like eagles. That yes, tough times still come for Christians, but we have God on our side. And as Paul says to the Romans, if God is for us, then who can be against us? A third false way that people look at Jesus is that Jesus came to instantly fix all my problems. If I surrender to Jesus, if I love Jesus, if I follow Jesus, then he's going to fix my marriage. He's going to fix my kids. He's going to fix my job. He's going to fix my addictions. He's going to fix my struggles. He's got like a two-week window, and he's going to get it all fixed. Look, God could do that, but most of the time, God takes us, and God takes us through these battles, and he takes us through these struggles, and he takes us through these problems to use them to mature us and to grow us, and God does not always instantly fix our struggles. God does not always instantly fix our problems. If you fall down and break your arm, it gets put in the cast, and it takes time for that to heal. In the same way, when we go through times in life, just because we love God doesn't mean he's going to instantly fix everything like he's our magic butler who comes along and does what we want. God takes time. God grows us. God matures us. God works in our life over time because God wants us to to actually grow and mature and not just give us a a, a magic button that we can press that says, all right, God, uh, this is my fix-it button. I'm going to do this, and you're going to fix everything in my life. That's not God's will. That's not God's desire. With all of these, the focus is not God and his glory, but man and what man wants. And look, it was the same thing with the disciples. The disciples wanted the disciples wanted this earthly king. They wanted this earthly Messiah. They wanted Israel back to prominence. That's what they wanted. So when Jesus says, look, That's not going to happen. I'm going to be killed. And they're like, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't comprehend this. That's not what we want. That's not the mold we wanted the Messiah to fit into. And that's the problem with false views of Jesus. When there are false views or false expectations of Jesus, when they are not met, then it shakes our faith. If our expectation of Jesus is is health and wealth, when we get cancer or when we don't have any money in our bank account, what does that tell us about Jesus? If our expectation of Jesus is that that everything is going to be easy, when we run through those storms in life, what does that mean about Jesus? If we think that Jesus is just going to fix everything, no matter how we've been living up to that point, he's just going to magically fix everything. When everything is not fixed, when we still have struggles, when we still see our weaknesses, when our marriages still have to take work, when our kids still have to take work, what does that say about Jesus? When our expectations are false and they're not met. It says that that, that we've missed the boat. But what ultimately happens is people's faith gets shaken because they have a false expectation of Jesus that is not met. So what are some biblical expectations of Jesus? Now understand, this is not an exhaustive list. Here's just some things, though, that that Jesus has said, or that the Bible says, this is why Jesus came. And we can bring from this and understand from this um, things that we can expect and look to Jesus for. First, Jesus came that we might know truth. 
Jesus came to proclaim truth. Jesus came as truth to, to show us what it meant to know God, to love God, to follow God, to have a standard to understand righteousness. God came to validate the Old Testament, or Jesus came to validate the Old Testament. To, to, Jesus said that he came to, uh, not to destroy the Old Testament or the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, Jesus Christ came to say, look, I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Let me tell you what truth is. Let me tell you what is good. Let me tell you what is right. In John chapter 18, when he is talking to Pilate, as he is uh, basically on his mock trial on the way to the cross. In John 18, 37, it says this. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds by saying, what is truth? Look, we live in a world where the idea of truth has been and will continue to be under attack. Where truth is looked at as subjective, which means truth is is subject to whatever you want it to be. Uh, Popular statements today are things like, follow your own truth or live your own truth. And, and, and we live in a world where, where truth is, is downgraded to where what's right for you might not be right for me, and what's right for me might not be right for you. And we've taken the idea of truth. We've taken the idea that, that truth is truth, regardless of who believes it or regardless of whether you agree with it or not, that truth is truth because it comes from a source. And Jesus said that he has come to proclaim truth, that the world might know truth. And the truth that Jesus is talking about is the word of God. That the truth that that, that God has given us in his word reigns above all else. And so when our world says, what is truth? When we have... um, People in government who say that uh, morality is more important than, 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 than truth or getting facts right, that you can lie as long as you care about people. The world needs people who can stand for and who can stand on truth. And what we have in God's Word is truth. Truth defines for us morality. When we throw out truth, then morality is thrown out as well. When we throw out truth, then the sanctity of life is thrown out. When we throw out truth, then we are led by our hearts. And the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. When we throw out truth, then we are led by faulty leadership. Because we are led by ourselves. Truth is how God has revealed himself. Truth is how God has said what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Truth is how God has shown us who he is and how he desires for us. And one of the reasons Jesus came was to show us, to bring us, to push to the forefront truth. In our own personal lives, if we are going to stand against lies, you stand against lies with truth. So Jesus came that we might know truth. So an expectation of Jesus is we can study his word. We can look at his truth to find out who we are to be and how we are to live. Second, Jesus came to serve and to teach us humility. Mark chapter 10 verses 42 through 45 says this. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came as a servant. Jesus Christ came to lay his life down for others. Jesus Christ came to put others as more valuable and more important than himself. Jesus Christ came to serve. And what he tells us in this passage is those who follow him should model that. Those who follow Jesus should be servants as well, should be servants likewise. Those who follow Jesus should be humble. He says the leaders of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They take their power, they take their authority, and they use it and they abuse it. But we should be servants. We should put others first, their needs first, their desires first. We should go and we should help dying to ourselves, placing our, our, our self-centered desires down on the ground so that we can help other people. Be humble as believers. Be humble in our faith. Be humble as we help and minister to other people. Jesus came to serve and to teach us as believers that we are to be serving as well. Next, Jesus came to call us to devotion, or Jesus came to call us to devotion to Him. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 35 says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now understand, Jesus is not saying that I've come to to kind of create civil war in the family. But what Jesus is saying, look, I've come, and and if you're going to follow me, if you're going to, to walk after me, if you're going to take up your cross and follow me, that I come first. I am God. I am creator. I am the savior. I'm the one that is laying my life down for you. I'm the one that's going to redeem you to myself. I come first. I come above your parents. I come above your spouse. I come above your children. When it comes to being devoted to, when it comes to following after, when it comes to loving, when it comes to to worship, I am the first in your life. An expectation that we can expect in our lives that Jesus has called us to be devoted to Him. As much as I love my wife, God has called me to love him before I love my wife. In fact, I cannot properly love my wife if I don't love God first. As much as I love my kids, my three with the one on the way, as much as I love them, I cannot love them more than I love God. If I do, I will be a a faulty or a flawed father. I cannot love them best unless I love God first. Because it's through loving God that I can throw away my self-centeredness. It's through loving God that I can show them grace and patience. It's through loving God that I can invest in them what is most important uh, for their lives. So Jesus has to be first. We are called to devotion to Him. Next, Jesus came to bring us a purposeful life. John 10.10 The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus has promised an abundant life, a life of purpose, a life of fulfillment, a life of of satisfaction. That's not found through money. That's not found through wealth. That's found through Jesus. It's found through being devoted to Him. It's found to being trusting Him. It's found by by following His Word and the truth that He has given us. It's it's found by, by following Him and keeping Him first. He said, look, the the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. The sin has so many lies that it throws out at us. It says, look, if you want life, if you want a satisfied life, a fulfilled life, the man, go out and get drunk and have fun. Go out and use the drugs. Cheat on your spouse. Sleep with whoever you want to. Uh, Throw away anything that is right or good to make you happy. Do whatever makes you feel good. That's what sin tells us. That's what the world tells us. And Jesus says, that is a lie. All that is going to do is bring destruction. I have come that you might have life. I have come that you might have life abundant. If we want a life of satisfaction, of joy, of purpose, of fulfillment, it is only found through Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Next, Jesus came to break the bonds of sin. Look at these next two verses. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now understand, in the book of 1 John... um, John talks a lot about, about sinning and obedience, and what he's talking about is a lifestyle, the, the, the habit of your life. Is the habit of your life sinning like this, that you just go on sinning and sinning and sinning, there's no confession, there's no repentance, there's no conviction, or is the habit of your life you're going to obey God, follow God, love God? Not that you're going to be perfect, but what is the habit of your life? And here Jesus or the, John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the 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 bonds and the change that, that, that sin has on our life. Before Christ, we are all slaves to sin. Before salvation, sin is our master. And yet, Jesus Christ, when we place our faith and trust in Him, He breaks those chains, He breaks those bonds, so that sin is no longer our master, but He is. And sin does not have the, the right to rule our life. Anytime we sin, anytime we give, or sin has authority in our life, it's because we've given it back to sin. It's not because sin is strong enough. It's not because sin is powerful enough. It's not. Jesus is bigger than our sin. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That means that Jesus came. He put on flesh and blood. He became a human being. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus came to bring victory. Jesus came to bring victory over our sin. He came to bring victory over our pain. He came to bring victory over our addiction. He came to set us free. And the way we are found the way we find freedom through Jesus is this. Jesus came to bring salvation. <coughs> the most important reason why Jesus came was because you and I were slaves to sin. And because of that, we deserved judgment. 
But God loved us so much that he sent his son because he had a plan that his son was going to come. His son was going to die on the cross. His son was going to take our punishment upon himself. And he was going to grant us his righteousness. So if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we would be saved. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. It says, whom God put forth, talking about Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says that he was our propitiation. Propitiation means that he satisfied God's wrath towards our sin. God looked at our sin and God hates sin. Sin is opposite. It is anti-God. And God looks at sin and he hates it. And he has wrath towards it. And he has anger towards it. And he has justice towards it. And he looked at our sin and he said, the only way for this to be satisfied is for someone to take their place. So Jesus died. And on the cross, every ounce of wrath, every ounce of anger God had towards our sin was, was laid on Jesus. He was our propitiation so that that wrath was satisfied towards our sin. And not only was he our propitiation, but he says that he was both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. To be justified means to be made innocent before God. So now because of Jesus, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, God no longer looks at us and sees guilty people in their sin. He sees people whose sins have been forgiven. He sees people whose whose sins have been laid on Jesus Christ. He sees people who have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are just justified. We are made innocent. We are made clean in the eyes of God. He, he justified us by dying on the cross. John 12, 27 says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's talking about the cross in this passage. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus says, the purpose I've come is the cross. The purpose I've come, because I'm going to die. And for those who would believe in me, I'm going to take their punishment. I'm going to take their sin. I'm going to take the wrath of God. I'm going to take the righteousness and the justice of God upon myself so that they can be forgiven and saved. And the Bible says that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says that if we want our sins forgiven, if we want to be justified, if we want Jesus to be our propitiation, then we have to place our faith and trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. That we have to go to Him and say, I am a sinner. I have fallen short. I have messed up. And I need you to save me because I cannot fix myself. I cannot save myself. I cannot make myself right before God. I need you. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. One of the biggest expectations that we can have of Jesus that if we call out to Him for salvation, He will hear us. And He will save us. And He will forgive us. 
When I was 15 years old, I called on the name of Jesus. I confessed that I was a sinner. And I confessed that I needed Him to save me. And on that day, He changed my life. And because of that, I've got all these other expectations. I understand truth. How to walk with it. How to, how to follow Him and to study His Word. I have the expectations that He'll be there with me in the midst of tough times. I have the, the right expectations, but it starts with this one. That if I call on the name of the Lord, I will be saved. I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know where you're at. I don't know you're standing with God. But here's my encouragement. Here's what I beg of you. Not just encourage you. Of you. I beg of you. Examine your heart. Examine your life. If there's never been a time when you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I would beg you to consider that this morning, to do that this morning, to understand that there is only one way to God. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through the Son. Nothing else will get us there. Nothing else will move us to salvation. Nothing else will get rid of our sins. Nothing else will cleanse us. doesn't matter how good you are. doesn't matter how many Sundays you come to church. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized 10 million times. If you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you are not a child of God. And you're still bound under the wrath and the chains of your sin. And what that means is once this life is over, all you have is judgment. And judgment is hell for all of eternity. But the Bible says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to die because we needed a Savior. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All we have to do is in humility confess that we need Him and ask Him to forgive us of our sins and ask Him to save us. The Bible promises that He will. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we just thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that, God, that when we were lost, when we were dead in sin and trespasses, God, that you loved us enough to send your own son to die for us, to become our propitiation, to, to justify us. And Father, God, all you request of us is that we repent of our sins, we confess and believe in who you are, and we confess you as our Lord and Savior. Father God, I pray right now for anyone in this room who does not know you. Father God, I pray that this morning that might change. That this morning they might place their faith and trust in you as their Savior. God, that you would remove any uh, obstacles, remove all the doubts from their mind that are floating through right now, uh, uh, any fear, and Father God, draw them to yourself. God, I pray for anyone in this room who does know you, but maybe they've had some false expectations of, of your son. Maybe they've had false expectations of Jesus. Father God, I pray that they would, would dive headfirst into your word to understand what uh, or who Jesus is and why he came and what we can biblically expect of him. Father God, we just want to love you more because there is no one greater for us to love than you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.